Well, we're going to deal with a uh, emotionally charged topic this morning. We're going to deal with the emotionally abusive marriage. And in the last 40-some years that I have been involved in pastoral ministry and counseling, um, I was looking back on notes and stuff that I had in my resources and found very few um, uh, presentations or material on this from a biblical perspective. And so I felt that it was very much a much-needed thing. Over the past uh, 40, almost 45 years of ministry, I've had to deal with this in counseling multiple times, many, many times. And so it's something that needs to be addressed. And so this is the whole reason behind this particular seminar this morning. So uh, let's begin with prayer, and then we'll jump right into our topic if we can. So let's bow for prayer, shall we? Gracious Father, we're so grateful for your care for us and your love for us. We do pray for those that have been affected by the pandemic. We pray for those who are sick and, uh, and still recovering, those who have uh, lost loved ones during this time. We pray, Father, for your encouragement and support during their time of grief. Uh, we do grieve, as the Apostle Paul says, but we don't grieve like men without hope um, because we know the Lord Jesus Christ and because of the resurrection, there is always hope there. We pray that you'll help us to be cautious and careful during this particular time, but also, Father, uh, be willing to uh, worship you um, on a day-to-day basis in our personal lives and even be willing to worship you in a corporate manner as well. Father, we approach a topic that is a a vitally important topic for Christian spouses, especially that are in difficult marriages. We pray for um, sensitivity to what they are going through. We pray for biblical acuity when it comes to addressing these issues, especially the way the world has a tendency to take these issues and twist them to more of a psychological approach to dealing with problems, which is counter what the Bible says or gets people thinking in the wrong directions about them. Help us to be faithful to the word of God, loving and caring, especially in relationship to the truth. So we commit this time to you and ask for your work in our lives. Help us to be the kind of caring Christians that we need to be. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me begin by drawing your attention to Romans chapter 12. If you would take your Bible and go to Romans 12 and take a look at real briefly at verse 15. Here in the midst, uh, and there was significant division that was going on in the Roman church when the Apostle Paul is writing in Romans 12. And uh, his call in chapter 12 is a call to unity uh, within the church. And uh, you can see this up in verse 1 when he talks about, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I cannot tell you how many times I hear Christians misuse that verse. It's used as a calling to ministry or a calling to missions, and that's not at all what this verse is talking about. In fact, you look at that verse carefully, you begin to realize, he says, therefore I urge you, and in the Greek language, the word you is in the plural, can't see that in the English, 
brethren, plural, by the mercies of God, to present your plural, bodies, plural. The most important word in this verse is the next word, a, the indefinite article, a living sacrifice. What this is, not so much a call as to our personal dedication to Jesus Christ, it's a call to corporate unity. Uh, There's a plurality of, of the body of Christ, but we are all one living sacrifice presented to God. We are to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, he breaks down what he means by that throughout chapter 12. But one of the salient things that especially is applicable to what we're talking about today has to do with our care for one another. In verse 15, he drops down and says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's our responsibility as Christians. In other words, um, we get caught up in our own lives so much that we forget about really what's going on in the lives of other people and the difficulties they're going through. When they are going through times of rejoicing, we should be able to rejoice with them. In other words, there should be something that's a key component part of a Christian's thinking that causes them to think corporately more than they think about their personal welfare. Um, That's where they're able to, in a sense, step outside of themselves and take a look at what's going on in the lives of other people. And, And when they're going through times of rejoicing, rejoice with them. But when they're going through times of weeping, we weep with them as well. That's part of our corporate act of worship, being other minded in our Christian walk, being other-minded in the way in which we interact within the body of Christ. This is one of the critical areas that make us distinctive from the world. The world is very self-centered. The world is very self-focused. The world is always talking about self-love, self-esteem, building self up. That's the focus that the world has. And the Bible is just the opposite. In fact, the very core of depravity is self-love. The very core of depravity is self-love. When Jesus, in Matthew chapter 22, talks about what is the greatest commandments, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When he made that statement, he says, and then in the very next verse, in verse 40, Matthew 22, 40, he says, upon these two commands, the entire law hangs. But what's happened in Christianity is we've turned them into three commands. We've turned them into three commands. You see a lot of Christian psychologists do this. They talk about loving self, loving God, and loving others. In fact, you can't love God and you can't love other people until you first love yourself. All right, that's what they'll say. That's the statement. That is 180 degrees the opposite of what Jesus is saying. All right, Jesus is saying we need to love God and we need to love others to the same degree of passion that we already love self. It's not three commands, it's two commands. Upon those two commands, the entire law hangs. On those two commands. That that means how much we love God and how much we love other people really determines everything in our spiritual walk. It, It does. And so when it comes to this issue of the emotionally abusive marriage, this taps right into it on how much we really care about what is going on 
with people who are in hurting marriages. Now, let me say this right at the outset. My primary focus is going to be upon women that are in emotionally abusive marriages. That's going to be my primary focus. I know that there are men who are in those kind of marriages, all right? I know that that's the case. Um, but, uh, and in fact, I've had to deal with a number of men who were in emotionally abusive marriages. Um, but the vast majority of them, especially from a Christian perspective, and especially where a husband, whether he's a believer or not, takes up this uh, hypo-machoism and uh, begins to use the excuse of a wife submitting herself to her husband as a reason for being emotionally abusive to his wife. And this is something that in Christianity we have got to uh, go to war against that kind of mentality. It's just, that's a horrible way. It's a a terrible distortion of Scripture because nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that Men, you're supposed to make sure your wives submit. doesn't say that anywhere. It says, wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands. All right? That's what it says. In other words, this has to do with an attitude that's in her heart. And oftentimes I'll say in marriage counseling, listen, you can't make her submit anyhow. You may be a lot bigger and stronger than her, but you can't make her submit. Because submission, from a biblical perspective, is an attitude of the heart. It, you may make her obey, because you're bigger and stronger, but you can't make her submit. It's impossible. It's impossible for that to happen. Um, so let's talk about this much more in detail here, where there are really numerous marriages that are in trouble today. And in reality, marriage, the way that God created it, is really just fine. Marriage is fine. It's the people who are in marriages that are in deep trouble. Uh, The hateful, angry, attacking reactions between a husband and wife show often the depth of depravity in their own hearts, whether it comes from the popular terminology, microaggressions or macroaggressions, it's not what God had in mind for marriage. And I want to start off by using the illustration right out of my own experience, not with my wife, but in counseling. (laughs) My wife's sitting here, so she's watching everything I'm saying. (laughs) Um, Because I've had to counsel many women in emotionally abusive marriages over the past 45 years. And let me share just one. Once I had a young woman who came to me after being married for about three years. We're going to call her Isabella. That's not her real name. She was an average size woman, about five foot, six feet, or five foot, six inches tall. And she was married to a guy who was 6'11". He was a giant of a man by comparison. And we're going to call him Isaiah. He was a basketball player in the past who had played collegiate ball. Um, I I was pretty sure because I had probed her salvation that she was a very genuine Christian. She understood the gospel. She had committed her life to Jesus Christ, but she was relatively new in the faith. Um, He claimed to be a Christian, 
But there was no genuine fruits that really showed up in his life other than occasionally attending church. And in fact, he had grown up in a pastor's home, but his father had pastored a very liberal Protestant church. And even though Isabella was a relatively new Christian, she was very confident in her faith. But what was going on in her home was shaking her to the core. He would play awful mind games with her. He didn't want her to have any friends, especially at church. He would keep her up late at night as he would drink his beer, becoming more and more caustic and accusatory as the night dragged on. He would threaten to beat her and even destroy personal things that she loved and possessed just because he knew that they were precious to her. When they were in public, he would humiliate her. He controlled all the money so that she was totally dependent upon him. And one day, she told me how he demanded that she crawl underneath their little house and take cleaning rags and clean off the cobwebs and the dirt on the rafters underneath the floorboards. You think about that. Those are, that's just one example out of multiple examples that we could give about Isaiah's expectations and demands placed on her. And you know what? As a godly woman, wanting to follow what the Word of God says, she was willing to do that. She crawled underneath the floorboards of her home and dusted off all the cobwebs and the dirt underneath that house. I'll tell you, as a pastor, I'll die for a woman like that. I'll die for her because she's trying her best to live out the testimony of Jesus Christ in front of her husband. But it's totally unreasonable what's going on. It's Isabel had become, over those three years, extremely fearful of Isaiah. It was a miserable way to live every day. It was like dying from a thousand different small cuts. This was not living. It was a form of daily torture. But then it's really interesting. There were times where he would buy her flowers, her favorite candy, even speak lovingly to her. There were even times in public where Isaiah could be very well-mannered, caring, charming. But when they were back in private, his attitudes and his actions changed for all the worse. And there are a lot of women who are living in that kind of a marriage and they don't have much hope and they certainly don't have much help. Now, I want to start off by trying to define as best as possible what is emotional abuse. 
What is emotional abuse? Isaiah and Isabella's marriage is a type or a good example of what I'm talking about today. I could probably share many more, but for the sake of time, I have to move on. This is addressed to leaders in the church. This is addressed to pastors. Let me read for you Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 4, when God condemned the leadership of Israel, and he called them the shepherds of Israel, very similar to the way we refer to pastors as shepherds today. And God condemns the leaders and the elders of Israel for not caring for his people. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord in Isaiah or Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them and they will not be afraid any longer nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord God. So if you're a pastor and you're a leader in the church and you are listening to what I'm talking about today, I'm addressing you specifically to care about what's going on here. Now, Psalm 55, where David highlights what I believe a lot of women who are in emotionally abusive marriages go through, David himself understood and he echoes the thoughts and the cries of emotionally abused and I, in Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14, where he says, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I, will, I could hide myself for him, but it is you, a man of my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend, who has had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God in the throng. In other words, the thing that made his hurt so painful was this was someone who was a friend who was supposed to be caring, supposed to be loving. This was what made it so painful. And I want to keep that in mind. This has helped to shape my thinking, especially in relationship to emotional abuse, because I'm not going to define it the way the world does. I've read a lot of social worker training material on this, and it's just horrible stuff. I think that they intend well. I think that they, they intend well when they train social workers to deal with this thing. So the intentions are very honorable. But when it comes to really giving substantive help and hope in thinking through this, there is no biblical truth there. And there's nothing that really has any substance. And most of the counsel ends up in a destroyed, destructive marriage. That's usually what happens. So let's see if we can define this if we can, because I think that this is critical. The first thing we want to highlight is that 
When a person who is in an implicit position of trust betrays that trust, that is a form of emotional abuse. There has been a betrayal of trust. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 29 um, and Proverbs chapter 3, verses 29 and 30. In fact, I'm going to ask you to take your Bible and go back there for a moment. Uh, probably one of the best succinct definitions in all of the Bible when it comes to abuse in general is Proverbs chapter 3, verse 29 and 30. And it's really addressed to the person who's the abuser. The person who brings abuse on other people. Verse 29 says, Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives securely beside you. Do not contend with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. This is what an abuser does for various reasons, different bad attitudes towards their spouse, They contend with their spouse, even though their spouse intends them no harm. In fact, actually intends on actually loving them, caring for them. Later on in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 29, he who troubles his own house will inherit the wind and the foolish will be servant to the wise hearted, right? They will inherit the wind. That is a very strong warning in Scripture. To inherit the wind means there are major storms that God's going to bring into their life. In God's own timing, but this is going to happen. Now, if you were to walk down inner city street here in Los Angeles in the evening, you would probably be on your toes listening watching to see if there's anybody behind you that's going to attack you and mug you. You would kind of anticipate that a little bit, the way things go on in our culture and society today. Especially if you're in a place of risk. And if that were to happen and you were to get mugged, it would be hurtful to you, obviously, maybe even physically hurtful to you. But I want to suggest to you that that would not be as painful as what happens in a marriage relationship when somebody becomes abusive. Because, why? Because that other person is in an implicit position of trust. We gave them that trust when we married them. We told them that we wanted to be their closest loving friend. We wanted to be intimate with them. And there was, an, there was a covenant established between us. And now that's violated. There's deep, deep emotional pain. A marring of the soul we could say, when that happens. If you've ever read Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag, it's a tome 
But if you ever read that and he talks about what went on in the Soviet gulags, the physical torture, the starvation and everything was horrible. No doubt about that. But the thing that stands out in Solzhenitsyn's book is the fact it's the emotional abuse, the constant verbal harassment that left scars for the remainder of his life. That was key. So for us to be to think somehow that, okay, well, it's not really physical abuse. That person's not necessarily going through anything that's life-threatening. And so it must not be that bad. It is a horrible minimization of what, really what's going on. When a person who is in an implicit position of trust betrays that trust, that is a type of emotional abuse. There's a second thing I want to highlight here is that when you can no longer routinely rely upon the character, ability, strength, or truthfulness of your spouse, that becomes a form of emotional abuse. Proverbs 26, verses 18 and 19 says, Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death... So is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, was I not joking? Was I not joking? This is exactly what an abusive husband will often do. I've heard this over and over and over again. The implication is it's like a person who's shooting arrows into the the air. The Bible says, Those arrows, those jokes, those hurtful, harmful jokes are the very things that are going to come back down by God's design right on top of him. In other words, they're taking great risk when they do that kind of thing. Proverbs 26, verse 21, like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. Everybody's familiar with the contentious, quarrelsome wife in Proverbs. But here it's talking about the contentious man. And he's compared to charcoal and hot embers and wood to fire. He just keeps stoking anger and hurt. Stoking anger and hurt. Piling one upon the other. Proverbs 26, 28. A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. When you can no longer routinely rely upon the character, the ability, the strength, the truthfulness of your spouse, when it's turned to just the opposite, then we run into trouble. That is a type of emotional abuse. There's a third thing that I think is really critical here. And that is, then there's deep emotional pain because your spouse has treacherously abandoned the trust you granted them in your marital covenant. They have treacherously abandoned the trust that you granted them. 
I think we're very reductionistic when it comes to viewing marriage and the trust that's there. We have a tendency to reduce it down to sexual fidelity. No, it's much more than that. It goes way beyond sexual fidelity. It goes trusting them personally, verbally, their character, whether or not they're going to tell you lies or not. There's that trust. And they, they treacherously abandon that when they turn on their spouse. Psalm 35 and verse 26 says, let those be ashamed and humiliated altogether who rejoice at my distress. Let those be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves over me. Um, The implication here is that the psalmist is highlighting, highlighting the importance of how people treat one another. Um, When you shame and dishonor someone who is supposed to be your friend, your spouse, your loving companion. The psalmist experienced that in Psalm 35. There's a fourth element to this definition, and that is your spouse no longer cares, protects, provides, or honors you in your relationship. This is so key. Your spouse no longer cares, protects, provides, or honors you in your relationship. Listen to the words of David when he writes in Psalm 55 again. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around her upon her walls, and iniquity and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. He who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of the Lord in the throng. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling and in the midst As for me, I shall call upon the Lord, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me, for they are many who strive with me. Now, that's so key. Fifth, their betrayal is often evidenced in the persistent verbal assaults, deceit, and demeaning behavior. This is that betrayal of trust. It's evidenced in the persistent verbal assaults, deceit, their demeaning behavior in public, 
where they should be treating their spouse honorably, their wife with favor. Instead, it's just the opposite. I know of one husband that went out of his way with his wife's friends to undermine her character her so that she would be alienated from her friends. Well, thankfully, her friends, who were wonderful Christian women, caught on to this really quickly. They didn't buy what he was saying. Does the Bible talk about verbal abuse? Yeah, the answer is yes, it does. Verbal abuse is there... Here's a good example of this. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 18. There's one who speaks rashly like thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The tongue of the wise brings healing. Does this affect us for years to come? Absolutely does. Several years ago, a woman who had grown up in a home with a father and several brothers had been abused multiple times by her brothers as she was growing up. Her father was not a very kind or loving person at all. And that abuse, especially the constant verbal harassment that went on in her life as she's growing up as a a young girl into young adulthood, Eventually, she leaves the home. It was a type of relief for her to get out of that home, married a guy who was a really good Christian guy, started raising children. But as she began to raise children, she had a horrible time disciplining them. And the reason why was because when it came to the point where her children needed that discipline, she'd come right up to the edge of that line and stop because she did not want to turn into her brothers. So her children never got the discipline that was needed, which shows that that marring of her soul was deep and profound. It affected her. That marring of her soul was deep and profound. So there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword. You may work in your present job among people who are this way, but you can leave that and go home. This woman cannot. She's around it all the time. This is what she gets. That... Second area here has to do with deceitful abuse. Colossians 3.9 says, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And yet routinely, an abusive husband will lie to his wife or shade the truth or exaggerate responses, which is the same as a lie. That becomes, she doesn't know whether she can trust him. She's always on edge. Can I believe that? 
Is that true? Is he going to leave me out hanging on this particular issue? And now I'm going to get the pushback. The Bible also deals with people who are domineering, controlling abuse. Ecclesiastes 4.1, then I looked again at the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them, and on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. There's an ideal verse that describes what's going on in a woman's life like this. Where's the Christians that are supposed to come along and weep with those who weep or rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, how do we know whether or not this betrayal of trust, which is fundamental that, in a sense, mars the soul, how do we know whether or not that's going on? I've developed 24 diagnostic questions. to determine the seriousness of emotional abuse in your marriage. And we want to take a look at these 24 questions and just think about them a little bit. These are critical. And I want you to look at these questions like they're little BB holes in the side of your rowboat, all right? (laughs) It's not a big hole. They're little BB holes. And you're out in the middle of the lake. My sons and I just went out fishing the other day. We're out in the middle of the lake. And if you have little teeny BB holes, you're not sinking really fast, but you're still sinking. It may not seem like one or two of these are really important, but just a couple of these can eventually sink your boat. Something is wrong and you can't ignore the holes that are there in the side of your boat in your marriage. And I think you need to answer these. Is this always happening? Is it occasionally happening? Or is it never happening? Is it always happening? Occasionally happening? Never happening. Let me share one other thing. Sometimes, also, depending on your cultural background, culture dictates this. In other words, culture says this is the way the husband's father, this is the way the grandfather, this is the way the culture handles things. So we just assume that that's okay to do that in a sense to emotionally abuse a wife. Scripture has always got a trump culture. Scripture has always got a trump culture. Always. I don't care what culture or background you come from. It's always got to trump culture. So let's take a look at these 24 questions. First question is this. I'm told I'm stupid, worthless, mocked, and belittled. Is that always? Is that occasional? That never happens in my home. Question number two. I'm threatened with abandonment by my spouse. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave you and you're going to have nothing. 
And the ultimate trump card is, I'm going to take the kids. The ultimate trump card. You're threatened. You're threatened with abandonment by your spouse. Third, I'm told who can be my close friends by my spouse. My spouse dictates who my friends are going to be. This person can be your friend, but this person cannot be your friend. And usually it's the people who are genuinely close and caring that cannot be your friends. Because that represents to the spouse a loss of control. Fourth, I'm criticized before others. Our children, our friends, our family. I'm constantly being criticized. He's constantly running me down in front of other people, trying to destroy my reputation, trying to undermine my character. And of course, while he's doing that, he's trying to uplift the virtuosity of his own character. I'm criticized before others. Fifth, I'm criticized about my appearance. He's constantly doing that. He doesn't doesn't say anything helpful to me. In fact, everything he says is hurtful. I'm criticized about my appearance. Number six, I'm cursed and screamed at by my spouse. Now, this happens quite frequently. I remember 21 years ago when my wife and I first moved to California, we were temporarily put in a condo on the second floor of condos. And we would get up in the morning, get ready for our day, have breakfast together, have prayer together. And we'd be sitting there at the breakfast table, and these condos are so close and packed together. All right? You could hear people breathing in other condos around you, all right? Um, And we could hear people yelling, screaming, hateful things. And I remember turning to my wife and saying to her, if this is a condition of marriages in America today, we're doomed. Just hateful stuff going on. Curse screamed at by my spouse. Number seven, I must constantly inform my spouse where I am. Texts, location apps required to be a part of my phone, internet, phone calls, whatever the case may be, I'm being tracked everywhere I go, which says, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. It just screams that. And of course, the wife understands that. She understands what's being said here. Number eight, I'm the subject of sarcasm and ridicule by my spouse. Always speaking sarcastically, always ridiculing. And in fact, people get into habit patterns of sarcasm. And it's hard for them to break out of those habit patterns. In fact, when they acknowledge him, I've counseled wonderful Christian couples. I believe that he was a genuine Christian. She was a genuine Christian. And one of the two of them got into habit patterns of sarcasm with their spouse. And to break that habit of sarcasm was incredibly difficult for them. They got used to responding their spouse 
with that habitual pattern. And it became natural. They could do it without hardly thinking. Number nine. This is a key area here. Another BB in the side of the boat, so to speak, is I'm physically restrained from going certain places by my spouse. Now, you may say at this particular point, emotional abuse has crossed over into physical abuse because physical abuse nowadays are, and there's that fuzzy line between the two, whatever the case may be. And I have no doubt about the fact that where physical abuse has occurred, there's usually already a history of emotional abuse that has already gone on. And it's usually a pretty deep history of emotional abuse. So the one ends up leading to the other. Or number 10, I'm threatened with physical force by my, my, my spouse. I'm threatened with physical force. Or number 11, uh, I've been intentionally injured by my spouse. Maybe they haven't directly hit me, pushed me, shoved me, kicked me, punched me. Maybe they haven't done that, but they've set things up where I've been injured. And then they ridicule me for being so stupid, but they set it up. Number 12, I'm threatened with harm to people and to things that I love. The children, extended family, pets, possessions. I'm threatened with harm. Anything that he knows that I love and I cherish is a potential source of destruction. Number 13, I'm forced to be used for the sexual fulfillment of my spouse. And the key word there is forced. From a biblical perspective, can you be in a monogamous marital relationship and still rape occur? Absolutely. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 through 5, sexual relationship in marriage is not for the purpose of self-fulfillment, but for the fulfillment of one's spouse. When force is implied in this situation, that becomes a form of marital rape. Number 14, I'm told that the problems in our marriage are all my fault. They're all my fault. We wouldn't have any problems if it weren't for you. That kind of statement, it's all my fault. Now, when you've been told that day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, does that have an impact in terms of marring your soul? Absolutely. Number 15. I'm ignored or neglected for long periods of time by my spouse. Sometimes they don't talk to you for long periods of time. Sometimes they totally avoid you for long periods of time. It's kind of like an emotional punishment. Something you've done that's wrong, I'm going to punish you by ignoring you. This is my form of punishment. And then when confronted about it, he will often say, wow, I never touched her. I never did anything that was wrong. Really? Maybe you didn't touch her. 
but you still harmed her. It's my response. You didn't touch her, but you still harmed her. I've said to husbands in counseling before on this issue, let me ask you a question. If the CEO of your company, where you have your entire retirement invested, embezzles all the money of that company, is that going to hurt you? Would that make you angry? Well, yes. Well, yeah, but he didn't touch you. He didn't touch you. Nothing happened. He he didn't touch you. He didn't physically hurt you. Now you understand emotional abuse. Yeah, but he took my money. I don't care. He didn't physically harm you. Now you understand emotional abuse. Number 16, I see my spouse being charming in public, but caustic at home. Charming in public. I have a little cartoon where the wife is talking to her husband, and she says, let's reverse things today. Let's say that you're charming at home and you're mean at church. I see my spouse being charming in public and caustic in home. Number 17. This is important. Because, in fact, this is a form of control. Um, I'm kept ignorant over the financial affairs of our home. I don't know what's going on. And more often than not, the money's being used for his toys, his pleasure. Oftentimes when she's kept in the dark, then there is a lot of debt that's piled up. Not all the time. And even if there's not, even if there's no debt and he's um, just extremely disciplined in the use of the money, uh, it still is a form of control because he knows he doesn't treat her well. And he knows that if she ever got the idea that she was going to leave him, then she'd have to abandon everything because she has no idea what what their finances are. I'm kept ignorant over the financial affairs of the home. Or number 18, I must seek permission from my spouse to spend money. Everything I buy, I've got to seek permission to do so. That doesn't happen in our home. We have a budget. When we were first married, we set out the budget. It occurred on a half sheet of paper. That was our budget. Now it's on a computer and it rivals the national budget (laughs) in details. She knows what she has to spend in certain areas. I know what I have to spend in certain areas. We don't have to consult each other. We trust one another in in spending of the money because it's not my money and it's not her money. It's our money. It's our money. It's the way it's viewed. But in a controlling and emotionally abusive marriage, he's the one that controls everything. 
It, it's that control aspect, that domineering, that oppressive aspect that has to be maintained. Now, you understand that people that are oppressors at the very core are extremely fearful people. They don't show it externally, but at the core, they're extremely fearful people. If I don't control things, this is the problem with a person that the world describes as obsessive compulsive. They're dominated by fear. Everything's got to kept in order. I've got to, if I don't control things, things are going to fall apart. Things are going to fall apart in our marriage, my life, everything. This could be a disaster. At the core, they're extremely fearful people. I must seek permission from my spouse to spend money. Number 19, I have discovered unnecessary secret expenditures made by my spouse. Expenditures I was never told about. Really? You bought that? When did you buy that? Secret expenditures, usually large expenditures. Um, When my wife and I were first married... I handled the budget. But I found out that she loves working with figures and details. Now, I'm stupid if I don't use that ability. Me, I'm a bigger pictured person. Having to get down and sit down and do the budget and uh, the details of that budget would just drag me into the slew of despond. (laughs) All right? It would just drag me down. But she loves doing that stuff. So turn all that over to her. She runs the budget, which is fine. So I'll go to her and say, how much money do we have in this little kitty? What about this over here? Constantly that kind of interaction. But when there is a betrayal of trust and there is no trust there between you and your spouse, none of that occurs. All of that, all of that is forfeited. 20. I'm held to a different standard of conduct than my spouse holds himself or herself. I'm held to a different standard of conduct, which really is a Matthew 7, 1 through 5 issue, where you're really interested in picking the splinter. That's the old King James translation. The Greek word there is particle, taking the particle out of other people's eyes while all along you have a log hanging out of your eye. Boy, did Jesus have a sense of humor or at least hyperbole here, somebody walking around with a log hanging out of their eye and you're trying to pick out little floaties in other people's eyes, all right? What is that? That's hyperbole, but you get the idea, right? You get the idea. You're trying to pick out little teeny issues in other people's lives. That's what happens when a husband does that to his wife. He holds her to a much refined standard than he does himself. He gives himself lots of leeway which is identical to Pharisaical conduct. Pharisees did the same thing. They held other people to very strict standards of conduct, but they gave themselves lots of latitude. Same kind of mentality. Or 21, our children are afraid of my spouse. That's a critical one too. Our children are afraid of my spouse. Now, there is, let me say this quickly, there is a godly kind of fear that children, I think my children, when they got in trouble, 
feared me, and that was good. But what we're talking about here is across the board, all the time, fearful. You can sometimes tell it in all the nonverbals that happens. When a father approaches the kids, the kids back up, even though they're not in a disciplined situation. That didn't happen with me in relationship to my children. Now, when they were in trouble, they'd back up because they knew, you know, the wrath of God was coming. Okay? They knew that that was going to happen. But the rest of the time, I hold out my arms. They'd run and throw their arms around me. They're not fearful of me in the overall sense of the word. This is, the kids are fearful all the time. I was counseling a couple and I realized it dawned on me in the midst of the the counseling that every day that the husband would come home from work, about 15 minutes before he came home, the wives and the kids were running for cover. All right? They got out of the way. It was like when he walked in the door every day, the house was almost empty. They ran for cover because they knew every day he brought all of his problems from work home to home with him. Well, I never wanted that to happen. Never. Even though as a pastor, I carried the problems of a whole bunch of people on my shoulders, I never wanted to bring that home with me. When I turned the corner into our housing development, I left all those problems right there on that corner. By the time we got to our house and pulled in, they were gone. I wanted this to be the happiest time of their day, not the worst time of the day. Children are afraid of the spouse. Number 22, I feel nauseous and sick when I'm around my spouse. Whoa, that's a biggie. I feel nauseous and sick when I'm around my spouse. That tells you a lot. And this is something that usually has been built up for years. Or number 23, I use painkillers and meds to survive in this marriage. I'm constantly popping painkillers to relieve a couple of Prozac to help me get through another day. Last of all, number 24, I'm told by my spouse what I should believe in the Bible. This is where he wants to control everything that she believes. Everything that she believes. And you say, all right, there's 24 diagnostic questions. What, are we, what am I supposed to do with these 24 questions? Well, listen, if you've answered one or two of these questions with the answer always, or three or four of them with occasionally, you have good reason to be concerned. You say, boy, that's a pretty strict standard. Oh, yeah. Questions one through eight here help to diagnose whether or not emotional abuse is present in your marriage. Questions nine through 16 will help you diagnose whether this emotional abuse has gone to the next level of physical abuse. That's the type of dominance and control. Controlling people are 
As I mentioned before, very fearful people. They never want to be seen as weak or incapable. It's much more than just simple insecurity. That's the way psychology would describe it. Where you have an insecure husband. It's really an issue of deeply embedded pride in his heart. That's the issue. It's not insecurity. It may manifest itself in insecurity-like things, but it's not insecurity. It's pride. Questions 17 through 24 help to diagnose more subtle forms of exercising dominance, control, or power over a spouse. And here, the emotionally abused spouse will easily begin to think that they're in a hopeless position with no escape. If they told anybody about their spouse, no one would ever, ever believe them. So we've defined abuse. We've tried to implement 24 diagnostic questions to help you examine what's going on in your own marriage. You may begin to see some of those BBs in the side of your rowboat multiply as a result of it. Let me turn to the second thing that we want to do here. What has God really provided for help in this situation? This is really key. What has God really provided for help in this situation? And I think very clearly from a theological point of view, there's three critical safety nets here that a woman in this situation, and by extension, if you have a man in a similar situation, to this, but especially a woman in this situation can cling to. This is so key. The first has to do with divine perceptive wisdom. You've got to be able to begin to look at this particular problem and look at your marriage from God's point of view. You've got to, in a sense, throw away the psychological glasses that you've been looking at this on and what a lot of contemporary books have said about this and put on God's glasses and look at this problem from his perspective. If you don't do that, you're not going to be truly wise in dealing with this. You've got to be wise in dealing with it. That divine perceptive wisdom is key. The second area has to do with discerning private counsel. And this is where the marvel of the body of Christ comes in. If you're a woman and you're in a situation like that, you need to seek out another woman who is skilled in the Bible mature in her walk. Hopefully she's had some good biblical counseling training. We have a number of those kind of women in our church and they need to help you. You say, well, my husband doesn't want that to happen. Well, he cannot control that. If you need help, you need to go to your church. Hebrews chapter 13 is very clear about that. Your husband doesn't keep watch over your soul. It's the pastors of your church who do. He can't forbid you from getting personal help, private counsel, which then brings us to the third safety net, and that is decisive pastoral guidance. Those are three critical safety nets that are there for you. They're God-designed for you. This is important. What do these three things do in essence? What do these three three things do? Well, divine wisdom probably is the top of our little pyramid here. 
Divine wisdom is the top of the pyramid. Then comes discerning counsel that is a part of your foundation. And then finally, decisive guidance. What are these things? Well, divine perceptive wisdom comes directly from God's word. We have to trust what the word of God says about my situation rather than what man says about it. I know it's very easy to begin to gravitate towards the world because the world has a lot of books that describe my problem really in detail. They know what's going on. But the problem is, even though psychology has a descriptive value, for the Christian, it has no prescriptive value. Okay? It may describe what's going on in the problem, but when it comes to telling you what you ought to do, this is where they go into all kinds of human wisdom not godly wisdom in dealing with what you need to do. So your wisdom is going to come from God's word. That's where the infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient word of God has got to be your guide. You have to anchor your soul there. This is vital. Second area has to do with discerning private counsel. It comes from another Christian using God's word. And the third area has to do with decisive pastoral guidance, which comes from elders of the church applying God's word. Now, what is that going to do for a woman going through this problem? Or even if it's a man going through this problem? What that's going to do is build courage and strength and a sense of love, even though she's in a marriage that is unloving. All right. Even though she's in a marriage that is unloving, it will help to encourage that. Why? Because all of this comes from God's authoritative word. And it will also provide for her compassionate personal accountability when she's overwhelmed by her emotions and it's hard to make a decision on how I go forward And this is going to help her deal with that issue. How do I go forward with all the confused emotions that seem to be going on? I mean, being the subject of constant barrage of hurtful words and behaviors can cause a person to think every day that you're you're having to watch every step you make. It's like living your life on a trapeze. If you fall this way, then you're going to die. If you fall the other way, you're going to die. So I think it's important that you look at these three provisions of God as your safety nets. If one doesn't work well, then you have a second. And if the second is insufficient, then you have a third. So let's look at each of these in order to understand... um, how you need to respond to ongoing emotional abuse. Let's take a look at this. The first one has to do with divine perceptive wisdom. Divine perceptive wisdom. Emotional abuse is like, as I mentioned earlier, dying from a thousand small cuts. Betrayal is the worst kind of emotional pain. It's awfully easy to fall into a victim mentality, becoming angry, resentful, And that's some of the key characteristics of a victim mentality. So it's vital for that you are intentional in focusing on righteous behavior and responses. 
Now, to the early Christians, enduring great abuse and persecution, the apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, 15 and 16, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. That's such a key statement. What does this mean? Well, take your Bible. Let's go over to 1 Peter for a moment. 1 Peter. And we're going to be especially interested in 1 Peter chapter 3. But I want you to notice the overall context here. What is Peter saying when he's talking to Christians? And the overall context is he's talking to Christians suffering unjustly. Okay? That's key. He's talking to Christians who are suffering unjustly. And many times that's what you've got. Now, it doesn't mean that a woman can't bring on stuff from her husband. Now, she's not responsible for the choices that her husband makes. Let me be quick to say that. It's his choices. He's responsible before God. But she can sure make it easy for him to respond in an ungodly way. She can grease the slide for that to happen. No doubt about that. If she herself is caustic or says hurtful, belittling things uh, constantly, verbally with him, she can sometimes create the climate for this to happen. And then she wonders, why is this happening to me? Now, we must not suffer, he says, as a murderer, thief, evildoer, or troublesome meddler. Now, it's interesting that he puts troublesome meddler right within the same classification as a thief and a murderer. (laughs) All right? Sometimes we can be troublesome meddlers. Um, I've met some wives who... The way that they acted towards their husbands, they acted towards them like they were their husband's personal Holy Spirit to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment and everything that they did. And so they were constantly judging everything that he did. And they wondered why he, they responded, he responded to her the way he did. But in the midst of this, I want you to see here in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, this is where we're really going to zero in. Peter sums it up. He says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now, contextually, let me make an observation here. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 is written to wives, verses 1 through 6, who are married to unbelieving husbands or at least husbands who were acting like unbelievers, okay? He says in verse 1, he says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, that's a description of a guy who's not a believer, but it could be a description of a guy who's acting like an unbeliever, They may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. In other words, sometimes women, who are usually better verbally than men are, resort to their strength. 
And that is, they resort to verbally instructing their husband. And it becomes a form of harassment on him. They pick away at him little by little. And then he explodes up. Well, you're not his personal Holy Spirit. You're not there to convict him of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit will do a much better job in his life than you'll ever do. You're there to live out Christ in front of him. That's what you're, especially if he's an unbeliever. You're there to do that. Then later on in verse seven, he talks to husbands who are married to unbelieving wives who have brought pain and suffering, unjust suffering into their lives. Can wives do that to husbands? Absolutely. And they're called upon in verse 7 to live with her in an understanding way as with someone weaker. Literally, the term is a weaker vessel. That means you could really translate this. Live with her as you would handle a delicate vase. That's the idea behind weaker. Delicate vase. Treat her with respect like you would do a, a, a very delicate vase since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. She may not be, but you treat her the same way you would a Christian wife, even though she's an unbelieving wife, so that your prayers will not be hindered. And then he says in verse 8 and 9, which we're really really interested in, he talks about um, then living harmonious, Sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now, I want to break this down just a little bit. He talks about living harmoniously here. You've got to be one-minded with Christ and other believers. If you're going to endure unjust suffering, remember, he's talking to both husbands and wives who are married primarily to unbelievers who are bringing unjust suffering in their life. You have to be one-minded, harmonious in your mind with Christ and other believers. There's the context. That's the way that this flows. In other words, you're going to react to unjust suffering the same way that Christ did. You say, how did Christ do that? Back in chapter 2, he talks about it. We pick up in verse 22. Look what he says. How did Christ do it? Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now, that's not just a statement as to the sinlessness of Christ. Within context, Peter is actually saying, now follow me here. Follow this. Peter is actually saying, Christ, who had no sin in his life, was treated unjustly, right? Which implies that he's the perfect example to follow, since there was no sin in his life, in responding to unjust suffering. Some of the suffering we go through, we deserve because we've brought it on ourselves. It's the idea. Some of the suffering we deserve because we brought it on ourselves. It's things that we've said, it's things that we've done. Some of the suffering we deserve. But Christ didn't deserve any of it. So he becomes the perfect example. Verse 23, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. His trust, his soul was anchored in what God was doing. That's what what happened. 
So you've got to be one-minded. Second thing in our list there in 1 Peter 3, 8, 9, you must not turn off your emotions, but continue to be sympathetic, understanding, and compassion, even though your spouse may not be. That's the idea. Sympathes is the Greek term where we get our word sympathy from in the English, showing love like a mother to her children. You need to continue to show love. Now, he's talking to people who are enduring unjust suffering. You still need to return love in response. Show compassion in response. Show sympathy in response. That's hard to do. That is really hard to do. But a woman who cultivates that kind of a heart in her her life is a really strong Christian woman. Hebrews 4.15 says... You can still be sympathetic because you have a Savior who is continually sympathetic with you. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. That becomes the standard by which we do it. The third thing in our list there in 1 Peter 3 has to do with you must treat your spouse as you would love another believer. Philadelphos, where we get our word Philadelphia from. City of brotherly love, to have affection for them is the idea. We are supposed to treat them as you would another believer, even though they may not be a believer. Treat them the same way. That's really hard to do after all the things that he said and done. And you understand that there's a history, I know. But this is what brings out Christ's likeness in you. Number four, you must cultivate a tender compassion for your spouse. The Greek term here has to do with being merciful towards them, which means I'm not going to allow the belittling statements and things that he says to drag me into despair. I'm going to continue to be merciful and pray for his salvation, pray for a change in his conduct, Number five, you've got to be humble in your interactions with your spouse. And the idea here is to be lowly in spirit. The Greeks and the Romans despise this word, the Greek term that's used here, but Christ elevates it as a virtue. So those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility gentleness, and patience. That's what we must actively do if we're going to stand for Christ. That's what has to happen. We're breaking down each term here, and this is where we have to focus. This is the divine guidance coming from the Word. Number six, You must not return their evil actions or insults. Instead, find ways to bless your spouse. And it means to speak well of and even praise them. You say, I have a hard time finding anything to praise in my husband. Well, look harder. All right. Now, the world thinks this is foolishness. 
And there are even some Christians who have bought in the world system that's written books about this that think this is absolutely nuts. But this is purely what the scripture tells us to do when we're undergoing unjust suffering. It is 180 degrees the opposite of the world. The world's going to say, oh my goodness, if you do that, you're actually going to bless the person who's bringing suffering into your life? What are you, an idiot? Are you so dumb to do that? The world's going to think that you're they're going to label you with a mental disease. Um, and think that you're nuts. But the Bible says this is exactly the way in which you win this person over to righteousness. Um, number seven. You are called as a Christian to serve higher purposes in order that you may inherit a blessing. Um, now, our tongues can easily betray the anger in our hearts when we've been so unjustly treated. James speaks out about evil in our tongues. He says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessings and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. James 3, verses 9 and 10. So when you give a blessing to your spouse... You are looking for ways to serve your spouse, pray for your spouse, their salvation, pray for their sanctification, letting them know that you're thankful for them. You speak well of them, find ways to honor them, uplift them. Altogether, you're seeking their overall well-being. This is your mission field for the sake of Christ and for the sake of righteousness. And in 1 Peter 2.21... The Apostle Peter speaks of the divine calling on your life to suffer unjustly as Christ did. And now here in 1 Peter 3, 9, he says that when you respond in a godly fashion to abuse, that God himself will ensure you receive a blessing. This is a reference to the future eternal rewards, but it also may include unexpected temporal blessings like the opportunity to share the gospel with your spouse. So there's your first safety net. The second safety net is divisive private counsel. Divisive. Discerning. (laughs) That was a Freudian slip, and I don't even believe in Freud. (laughs) Discerning private counsel. All right. And there's three things I want to highlight here. This second safety net is a is the private counsel from another believer who's skilled and hopefully well-trained in counseling and use of the Bible. Don't look for help or counsel outside the church, especially in books that are written by non-Christians or quasi-Christians. You'll need some loving biblical counsel, not secular, not semi-secular counsel from psychology. Three things here. The counsel of a Christian friend may help you when you are rebellious, faint-hearted, or weak, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. And by the way, that can, all three of those things can characterize the same person at different points in life, right? When you're rebellious, faint-hearted, or weak. When you get angry, you have a tendency to be rebellious. When you're fearful, you have a tendency to be faint-hearted. When you don't know what the future holds, you have a tendency to be weak. You need a Christian friend to come along and to counsel the second, the counsel of a Christian friend will identify 
with your tears and your joys. There's our Romans 12, 15 passage, as well as Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 3. Uh, the Christian friend will identify, have someone by which you can cry on their shoulder, so to speak. And then thirdly, the good counsel of a Christian friend is sweet. Proverbs says that. Proverbs 20, 27, 9, this is sweet. If you're willing to follow it, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes biblical counsel is counterintuitive, especially in the world in which we live but yet it is the anchor for your soul. So find a Christian woman who can sit down and help you. We have them. Some of them are sitting here in this audience. They can help you. The last safety net By the way, Proverbs 27 and 9 says, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friends. The last part has to do with decisive pastoral guidance. Sometimes you don't know what to do. You don't know how to move forward. The elders of the church are responsible for shepherding the flock when you're suffering. There are some situations in life like ongoing complicated emotional abuse that you may need to take to the elders of the church. Why the elders? Because they're charged by God to oversee your soul. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you, is the idea. The elders of the church are to be examples to you of how to handle unjust suffering. 1 Peter 5, 3 Remember, that book is dealing with the unjust suffering of God's people, and the elders are admonished to shepherd the flock in those areas. Oversee it. We started off using the passage from Jeremiah. talked about the leadership of Israel, how they failed in their shepherding. This is exactly what shepherds are supposed to do, 1 Peter 5. Third, the elders of the church will help keep your mind on your eternal reward. On your eternal reward. So those are the three safety nets. Now, this last part, I, because of time, I'm going to have to go through kind of quickly, but let me deal with this last part. What should I do now is the key thing. Well, I want you to understand that Psalm 55 through 57 are gifts to those who are emotionally abused. You've got to sink your soul into Psalms 55, 56, and 57. They are gifts to abused people. Study the concept of God's grace in Scripture that is directly related to fear. Why? Because if you study that carefully, you'll find out that the effect that God's grace has in our lives is that of fearlessness. The effect of God's grace in our lives has the effect of fearlessness. That's really critical. Because the world seeks to make you calmer, not fearless. How do they do that? With Prozac, with wine, with cognitive behavioral therapy, with vacations, with yoga, hypnotism, 
The world tries to calm you down. The Bible wants you to be fearless. There's a difference. That's the grace of God being manifested in your life. The Bible wants you to be fearless, to stand for Christ graciously, lovingly, harmoniously, sympathetically, stand for Christ. This is where you are most like Christ. And then you've got to determine your wise response. Your main goal must be to glorify God, not just get out of a miserable marriage. That's got to be the main goal of your life. What is the purpose of your life? It's got to be to glorify God. You may have a hidden agenda deep down. Oh, I can't wait just for an excuse to get out of this marriage. Wrong goal. You're placed there as a missionary in that marriage. Your focus can be upon winning your spouse over to righteousness, as we saw in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. That's what your goal should be. And I'm going to tell you, the mentality of Christian women has radically changed over the past couple hundred years. Radically changed. You say, how, how can you say that? Well, listen to this. Look, look how this is compared and contrasted. This is Sarah Pierpont Edwards. Remember, she was married to Jonathan Edwards, who was the, one of the first presidents of Princeton University, which was originally called the College of New Jersey. He died prematurely of a smallpox inoculation. But Sarah Pierpont Edwards was a wonderful gal who loved the Lord and loved her husband. But listen to what she says here. She finds her security and happiness in God alone. She says, if he, quoting her, her husband, Jonathan, should turn to be cruel to me and should horsewhip me every day, I would so rest in God that it would not touch my heart or diminish my happiness. I could still go in the performance of all the acts of duty to my husband and my happiness remain whole and undiminished. <sighs> I remember the first time I ever read that, I'm going, what, is she nuts? If he would horsewhip her every day, she could still do that? And I began to realize what kind of heart this woman had. This is why I talk about the grace of God bringing about fearlessness. Fearlessness. But today, we've got statements like this. This is Leslie Vernick in her book, The Emotionally Destructive Marriage. She says this, if you live with a difficult husband, an emotionally harmful husband, when you put your foot down and say, I will not allow myself or the kids to be treated this way anymore, it's destructive to me, to them, and to our marriage, you are not, you are not going against God by speaking uh, the truth in love, but you refuse to pretend and stay together at any cost, including your own physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual health. Now, let me ask you real quickly, of those two statements... Who's focused on glorifying God here? Sarah's is. Leslie Vernick's is focused on protecting self, which is the sunum bonum of secular counsel. That's the highest good. Protecting self. Now you say, do we stay in these marriages like this always? Well, there is a theology of escape in the Bible, Proverbs 22, verse 3. 
The prudent sees evil, hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. See the same thing in 2712 of Proverbs. So what is what is that theology of escape say? All right? What does it say? Well, you need to diligently study the biblical theology of escape with wise counsel. You need to do it with wise counsel. That's key. Let me highlight these things. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10, Psalm 56. Young David fled from King Saul because of his jealous anger. Saul was actually out to kill David out of his jealousy over David. As Proverbs 22, 3, 27, 12 says, the prudent sees evil, hides himself. Joseph and Mary with the child Jesus fled from King Herod who wished to kill the child. In Matthew 2, verse 13 and 14, Jesus fled from those who tried to kill him. John 7, verse 1. John 10, verse 39. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 32 and 33. Paul fled the authorities in Damascus who desired to harm him and to kill him. That's, there are numerous examples throughout Scripture Numerous examples of being godly doesn't necessarily, you just stand there and take it on the chin, okay? But it takes a lot of wisdom to decide when this is going to happen. It takes a lot of wisdom. This is why we call this a divorce dilemma. So let me advise you this way. It's critical you make this decision along with the wisdom of the elders of your church. They're there to help you, not make things more complicated. They are there to help you, even though the situation can be extremely complicated. Number two, a biblical divorce is only possible in two cases, unrepentant adultery and abandonment of an unbelieving spouse. Now, does emotional abandonment equal physical abandonment? That's the big question. And we realize that that is a slippery slope once you go down it. I believe that there are situations where it's possible that where a spouse has not necessarily left the physical house, but basically have neglected their spousal responsibilities to provide and protect. I had one situation where the husband, who was an unbeliever, just decided he wasn't going to give his wife any money or anything like that. He was basically going to starve her out. And he was going to proudly say, I never left her. Yeah, you did. You just didn't leave the house. All right? But you have to be very, very careful, and it takes a lot of discernment. If divorce trigger is pulled on those issues. And of course, your love of Christ must be your chief priority. Your love of Christ, your desire to glorify him has got to be your chief priority. This is not a simple issue. It is a very complicated issue. I don't necessarily pretend, and this is a disclaimer here, to have answered all, all questions about emotional abuse in marriage. I could literally go on for the next two or three days on this issue. But what I've tried to give you is, in a sense, a 30,000-foot overview. 
to help give you a, a biblical way to think about this particular problem and respond to this particular problem. This is going to be key. All right, let's bow for prayer, shall we? Gracious Lord, we are grateful for the light and the hope and the help that the word of God brings us. We're grateful for the safety nets you've put within the church, within the Christian community to help with this. First, the personal wisdom, then it's the wisdom and the counsel of others, and then is leadership and the guidance of the elders of the church. Because this indeed is an incredibly serious issue. It's much more prevalent in our society and even among Christians than we would ever think. We've got to be tender in our response to this, but biblically loving and caring. The best hope we can give people that are in this situation is bring them back to the scriptures. What does the Bible really say? That's the most loving thing that we can do. So I pray that you'll help us to follow the word of God even when we are undergoing unjust suffering. This we pray in Christ's name, amen.